Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, Part 2 of The Gold Bug by Edgar Allan Poe. And now, our story. We now worked in earnest, and never did I pass ten minutes of more intense excitement. During this interval we had fairly unearthed an oblong chest of wood, which, from its perfect preservation and wonderful hardness, had plainly been subjected to some mineralizing process, perhaps that of the bichloride of mercury. This box was three feet and a half long, three feet broad, and two and a half feet deep. It was firmly secured by bands of wrought iron, riveted, and forming a kind of open trellis work over the hole. On each side of the chest, near the top, were three rings of iron, six in all, by means of which a firm hold could be obtained by six persons. Our utmost united endeavor served only to disturb the coffer very slightly in its bed. We at once saw the impossibility of removing so great a weight. Luckily, the sole fastenings of the lid consisted of two sliding bolts. These we drew back, trembling and panting with anxiety. In an instant, a treasure of incalculable value lay gleaming before us. As the rays of the lanterns fell within the pit, there flashed upward a glow and a glare from a confused heap of gold and of jewels, "'that absolutely dazzled our eyes. "'I shall not pretend to describe the feelings with which I gazed. "'Amazement was, of course, predominant. "'Legrand appeared exhausted with excitement "'and spoke very few words. "'Jupiter's countenance wore, for some minutes, "'as deadly a pallor as it is possible, "'in the nature of things, for his visage to assume. "'He seemed stupefied, thunderstricken. "'Presently he fell upon his knees in the pit, and burying his naked arms up to the elbows in gold, let them there remain, as if enjoying the luxury of a bath. At length, with a deep sigh, he exclaimed, as if in a soliloquy, "'And tis all come to go bug! The pretty go bug! The poor little go bug! Ain't you shamed yourself, Jupiter? Answer me that!' It became necessary, at last, that I should arouse both master and valet to the expediency of removing the treasure. It was growing late, and it behooved us to make exertion, that we might get everything housed before daylight. It was difficult to say what should be done, and much time was spent in deliberation, so confused were the ideas of all. We, finally, lightened the box by removing two-thirds of its contents, when we were enabled, with some trouble, to raise it from the hole. The articles taken out were deposited among the brambles, and the dog left to guard them, with strict orders from Jupiter neither, on any pretense, to stir from the spot, nor to open his mouth, until our return. We then hurriedly made for home with the chest, reaching the hut in safety, 
but after excessive toil, at one o'clock in the morning. Worn out as we were, it was not in human nature to do more immediately. We rested until two, and had supper, starting for the hills immediately afterwards, armed with three stout sacks, which, by good luck, were upon the premises. A little before four we arrived at the pit, divided the remainder of the booty, as equally as might be, among us, and, leaving the holes unfilled, again set out for the hut, at which, for the second time, we deposited our golden burdens, just as the first faint streaks of dawn gleamed from over the treetops in the east. We were now thoroughly broken down, but the intense excitement of the time denied us repose. After an unquiet slumber of some three or four hours' duration, we arose, as if by preconcert, to make examination of our treasure. The chest had been full to the brim, and we spent the whole day, and the greater part of the next night, in a scrutiny of its contents. There had been nothing like order or arrangement. Everything had been heaped in promiscuously. Having assorted all with care, we found ourselves possessed of even vaster wealth than we had at first supposed. In coin, there was rather more than $450,000, estimating the value of the pieces as accurately as we could by the tables of the period. There was not a particle of silver. All was gold of antique date and of great variety, French, Spanish, and German money, with a few English guineas, and some counters, of which we had never seen specimens before. There were several very large and heavy coins, so worn that we could make nothing of their inscriptions. There was no American money. The value of the jewels we found more difficulty in estimating. There were diamonds, some of them exceedingly large and fine. A hundred and ten in all, and not one of them small. Eighteen rubies of remarkable brilliancy. Three hundred and ten emeralds, all very beautiful, and twenty-one sapphires with an opal. These stones had all been broken from their settings and thrown loose in the chest. The settings themselves, which we picked out from among the other gold, appeared to have been beaten up with hammers, as if to prevent identification. Besides all this, there was a vast quantity of solid gold ornaments, nearly two hundred massive finger and ears rings, rich chains, thirty of these, if I remember, eighty-three very large and heavy crucifixes, five gold censers of great value, a prodigious golden punch bowl, ornamented with richly chased vine leaves and bacchanalian figures, with two sword handles exquisitely embossed, and many other smaller articles which I cannot recollect. The weight of these valuables exceeded three hundred and fifty pounds avoirdupois, and in this estimate I have not included one hundred and ninety-seven superb gold watches, three of the number being worth each five hundred dollars, if one. Many of them were very old, and as timekeepers valueless, the works having suffered more or less from corrosion, but all were richly jeweled and in cases of great worth. We estimated the entire contents of the chest that night at a million and a half dollars, and upon the subsequent disposal of the trinkets and jewels, a few being retained for our own use, it was found that we had greatly undervalued the treasure. When at length we had concluded our examination, and the intense excitement of the time had, in some measure, subsided, Legrand, who saw that I was dying with impatience for a solution of this most extraordinary riddle, entered into a full detail of all the circumstances connected with it. "'You remember,' said he, "'the night when I handed you the rough sketch I had made of the Scarabaeus. "'You recollect, also, that I became quite vexed at you "'for insisting that my drawing resembled a death's head. "'When you first made this assertion, I thought you were jesting, "'but afterwards I called to mind the peculiar spots on the back of the insect, 
and admitted to myself that your remark had some little foundation in fact. Still the sneer at my graphic powers irritated me, for I'm considered a good artist, and therefore when you handed me the scrap of parchment I was about to crumple it up and throw it angrily into the fire. The scrap of paper, you mean, said I. No, it had much of the appearance of paper, and at first I supposed it to be such. But when I came to draw upon it, I discovered it at once to be a piece of very thin parchment. It was quite dirty, you remember. Well, as I was in the very act of crumpling it up, my glance fell upon the sketch at which you had been looking. And you may imagine my astonishment when I perceived, in fact, the figure of a death's head just where, it seemed to me, I had made the drawing of the beetle. For a moment I was much too amazed to think with accuracy. I knew that my design was very different in detail from this, although there was a certain similarity in general outline. Presently I took a candle, and seating myself at the other end of the room, proceeded to scrutinize the parchment more closely. Upon turning it over, I saw my own sketch upon the reverse, just as I had made it. My first idea now was mere surprise at the really remarkable similarity of outline, at the singular coincidence involved in the fact that, unknown to me, there should have been a skull upon the other side of the parchment, immediately beneath my figure of the scarabaeus, and that this skull, not only in outline, but in size, should so closely resemble my drawing. I say the singularity of this coincidence absolutely stupefied me for a time. This is the usual effect of such coincidences. The mind struggles to establish a connection, a sequence of cause and effect, and, being unable to do so, suffers a species of temporary paralysis. But, when I recovered from this stupor, there dawned upon me gradually a conviction which startled me even far more than the coincidence. I began distinctly, positively, to remember that there had been no drawing upon the parchment, when I made my sketch of the scarabaeus. I became perfectly certain of this, for I recollected turning up first one side, and then the other, in search of the cleanest spot. Had the skull been then there, of course, I wouldn't have failed to notice it. Here was indeed a mystery which I felt it impossible to explain. But even at that early moment, there seemed to glimmer, faintly, within the most remote and secret chambers of my intellect, a glow-worm-like conception of that truth which last night's adventure brought to so magnificent a demonstration. I arose at once, and putting the parchment securely away, dismissed all further reflection until I should be alone. When you had gone, and when Jupiter was fast asleep, I betook myself to a more methodical investigation of the affair. In the first place, I considered the manner in which the parchment had come into my possession. The spot where we discovered the scarabaeus was on the coast of the mainland, about a mile eastward of the island, and but a short distance above high water mark. Upon my taking hold of it, it gave me a sharp bite, which caused me to let it drop. Jupiter, with his accustomed caution, before seizing the insect, which had flown toward him, looked about him for a leaf, or something of that nature, by which to take hold of it. It was at this moment that his eyes, and mine also, fell upon the scrap of parchment, which I then supposed to be paper. It was lying half buried in the sand, a corner sticking up. Near the spot where we found it, I observed the remnants of the hull of what appeared to have been a ship's longboat. The wreck seemed to have been there for a very great while, for the resemblance to boat timbers could scarcely be traced. Well, Jupiter picked up the parchment, wrapped the beetle in it, and gave it to me. Soon afterwards we turned to go home, 
and on the way met Lieutenant Green. I showed him the insect, and he begged me to let him take it to the fort. Upon my consenting, he thrust it forthwith into his waistcoat pocket, without the parchment in which it had been wrapped, and which I had continued to hold in my hand during his inspection. Perhaps he dreaded my change in my mind, and thought it best to make sure of the prize at once. You know how enthusiastic he is on all subjects connected with natural history. At the same time, without being conscious of it, I must have deposited the parchment in my own pocket. You remember that when I went to the table, for the purpose of making a sketch of the beetle, I found no paper where it was usually kept. I looked in the drawer. I found none there. I searched my pockets, hoping to find an old letter, when my hand fell upon the parchment. I thus detailed the precise mode in which it came into my possession, for the circumstances impressed me with peculiar force. No doubt you will think me fanciful, but I had already established a kind of connection. I had put together two links of a great chain. There was a boat lying upon a sea coast, and not far from the boat was a parchment, not a paper, with a skull depicted on it. You will, of course, ask, well, where's the connection? I replied that the skull, or death's head, is the well-known emblem of the pirate. The flag of the death's head is hoisted in all engagements. I have said that the scrap was parchment, and not paper. Parchment is durable, almost imperishable. Matters of little moment are rarely consigned to parchment, since, for the mere ordinary purposes of drawing or writing, it is not nearly so well adapted as paper. This reflection suggested some meaning, some relevancy, in the death's head. I did not fail to observe, also, the form of the parchment. Although one of its corners had been, by some accident, destroyed, it could be seen that the original form was oblong. It was just such a slip, indeed, as might have been chosen for a memorandum, for a record of something to be long remembered and carefully preserved. But, I interposed, you say that the skull was not upon the parchment when you made the drawing of the beetle. How, then, do you trace any connection between the boat and the skull, since this latter, according to your own admission, must have been designed, God only knows how or by whom, at some period subsequent to your sketching the scarabaeus. Ah, hereupon turns the whole mystery, he said, although the secret at this point I had comparatively little difficulty in solving. My steps were sure, and could afford but a single result. I reasoned, for example, thus, when I drew the scarabaeus, there was no skull apparent upon the parchment. When I had completed the drawing, I gave it to you, and observed you narrowly until you returned it. You, therefore, did not design the skull, and no one else was present to do it. Then it was not done by human agency. And nevertheless, it was done. We'll return to the gold bug right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. At this stage of my reflections, I endeavored to remember and did remember, with entire distinctness, every incident which occurred about the period in question. The weather was chilly, oh, rare and happy accident, and a fire was blazing upon the hearth. I was heated with exercise and sat near the table. You, however, had drawn a chair close to the chimney. Just as I placed the parchment in your hand, as you were in the act of inspecting it, Wolf, the Newfoundland, entered and leaped upon your shoulders. With your left hand you caressed him and kept him off, while your right, holding the parchment, was permitted to fall listlessly between your knees, and in close proximity to the fire. 
"'At one moment I thought the blaze had caught it, "'and was about to caution you, "'but, before I could speak, "'you had withdrawn it, "'and were engaged in its examination. "'When I considered all these particulars, "'I doubted not for a moment "'that heat had been the agent "'in bringing it to light, "'upon the parchment, "'the skull which I saw designed upon it. "'You are well aware "'that chemical preparations exist, "'and have existed time out of mind, "'by means of which it is possible "'to write upon either paper or vellum, "'so that the character shall become visible "'only when subjected to the action of fire. "'Zafre, digested in aquia regia, "'and diluted with four times its weight of water, "'is sometimes employed. "'A green tint results. "'The regulus of cobalt, "'dissolved in spirit of nitre, gives a red. "'These colors disappear at longer or shorter intervals "'after the material written upon cools, "'but again become apparent "'upon the reapplication of heat.' I now scrutinized the death's head with care. Its outer edges, the edges of the drawing nearest the edge of the vellum, were far more distinct than the others. It was clear that the action of the caloric had been imperfect or unequal. I immediately kindled a fire, and subjected every portion of the parchment to a glowing heat. At first the only effect was the strengthening of the faint lines in the skull. But, upon persevering in the experiment, there became visible, at the corner of the slip, "'diagonally opposite to the spot "'in which the death's head was delineated, "'the figure of what I at first assumed to be a goat. "'A closer scrutiny, however, "'satisfied me that it was intended for a kid, "'a baby goat. "'Ha!' said I. "'To be sure I have no right to laugh at you. "'A million and a half of money "'is too serious a matter for mirth. "'But you are not about to establish "'a third link in your chain. "'You will not find any especial connection "'between your pirates and a goat.' Pirates, you know, have nothing to do with goats. They appertain to the farming interest. But I've just said that the figure was not that of a goat. Well, a kid, then. Pretty much the same thing. Pretty much, but not altogether, said Legrand. You may have heard of one Captain Kid. I at once looked upon the figure of the animal as a kind of punning or hieroglyphical signature. I say signature because its position upon the vellum suggested this idea. The death's head at the corner, diagonally opposite, had, in the same manner, the air of a stamp or seal. But I was scarcely put out by the absence of all else, of the body to my imagined instrument, of the text for my context. I presume you expected to find a letter between the stamp and the signature. Yes, something of that kind. The fact is, I felt irresistibly impressed with the presentiment of some vast good and fortune impending. I can scarcely say why. Perhaps, after all, it was rather a desire than an actual belief. But do you know that Jupiter's silly words about the bug being of solid gold had a remarkable effect upon my fancy? And then the series of accidents and coincidence. These were so very extraordinary. Do you observe how mere an accident it was that these events should have occurred only upon the sole day of the year in which it has been, or may be sufficiently cool for fire, and that without that fire or without the intervention of the dog at the precise moment in which he appeared, I should never have become aware of the death's head, and so never the possessor of the treasure. But proceed. I am all impatience. Well, you have heard, of course, the many stories current, the thousand vague rumors afloat about money buried, somewhere upon the Atlantic coast, by Captain Kidd and his associates. These rumors must have had some foundation in fact, and that the rumors have existed so long, and so continuous, could have resulted, it appeared to me, 
only from the circumstance of the buried treasures still remaining entombed. Had Kidd concealed his plunder for a time, and afterwards reclaimed it, the rumors would scarcely have reached us in their present unvarying form. You will observe that the stories told are all about money-seekers, not about money-finders. Had the pirate recovered his money, there the affair would have dropped. It seemed to me that some accident, say the loss of a memorandum indicating its locality, had deprived him of the means of recovering it, and that this accident had become known to his followers, who otherwise might never have heard that the treasure had been concealed at all, and who, busying themselves in vain, because unguided attempts to regain it, had given first birth, and then universal currency, to the reports which are now so common. Have you ever heard of any important treasure being unearthed along the coast? No, never, I answered. But that Kidd's accumulations were immense is well known. I took it for granted, therefore, that the earth still held them, and you will scarcely be surprised when I tell you that I felt a hope, nearly amounting to certainty, that the parchment so strangely found involved a lost record of the place of deposit. But how did you proceed? I held the vellum again to the fire, after increasing the heat, but nothing appeared. I now thought it possible that the coating of dirt might have something to do with the failure, so I carefully rinsed the parchment by pouring warm water over it, and having done this, I placed it in a tin pan, with the skull downward, and put the pan upon the furnace of lighted charcoal. In a few minutes, the pan having become thoroughly heated, I removed the slip, and, to my inexpressible joy, found it spotted in several places with what appeared to be figures arranged in lines. Again I placed it in the pan, and suffered it to remain another minute. Upon taking it off, the hole was just as you see it now. And here Legrand, having reheated the parchment, submitted it to my inspection. The following characters were rudely traced in a red tint between the death's head and the goat. 5-3, plus plus, 1-3-0-5, parentheses, parentheses, 6-4-8-2-6, parentheses, 4-plus, 4-plus, semicolon, 8-0-6, 48, exclamation point, 8, and so on. But, said I, returning him the slip, I am as much in the dark as ever. Were all the jewels of Golconda waiting me upon my solution of this enigma, I am quite sure that I should be unable to learn them. And yet, said Legrand, the solution is by no means so difficult as you might be led to imagine from the first hasty inspection of the characters. These characters, as anyone might readily guess, form a cipher. That is to say, they convey a meaning. But then from what is known of Kidd, I could not suppose him capable of constructing any of the more abstruse cryptographs. I made up my mind, at once, that this was of a simple species, such, however, as would appear to the crude intellect of the sailor, absolutely insoluble without the key. And you really solved it? Readily. I have solved others of an abstruseness ten thousand times greater. Circumstances, and a certain bias of mind, have led me to take interest in such riddles. And it may well be doubted whether human ingenuity can construct an enigma of the kind which human ingenuity may not, by proper application, resolve. In fact, having once established connected and legible characters, I scarcely gave a thought to the mere difficulty of developing their import. In the present case, indeed in all cases of secret writing, the first question regards the language of the cipher, for the principles of solution. So far, especially as the more simple ciphers are concerned, depend upon, and are varied by, the genius of the particular idiom. In general, there is no alternative but experiment, 
directed by probabilities, of every tongue known to him who attempts the solution, until the true one be attained. But with the cipher now before us, all difficulty was removed by the signature. The pun upon the word kid is appreciable in no other language than the English. But for this consideration, I should have begun my attempts with the Spanish and French, as the tongues in which a secret of this kind would, would most naturally have been written by a pirate of the Spanish main. As it was, I assumed the cryptograph to be English. You observe there are no divisions between the words. Had there been divisions, the task would have been comparatively easy. In such cases, I should have commenced with a collation and analysis of the shorter words, and, had a word of single letter occurred, as is most likely, A or I, for example, I should have considered the solution as assured. But, there being no division, my first step was to ascertain the predominant letters, as well as the least frequent. Counting all, I constructed a table. Of the character 8, there are 33. Now in English, the letter which most frequently occurs is E. Afterwards, the succession runs thus. After E, then come A, O, I, D, H, N, R, S, and so forth. E predominates so remarkably that an individual sentence of any length is rarely seen in which it is not the prevailing character. Here, then, we have, in the very beginning, the groundwork for something more than a mere guess. The general use which may be made of the table is obvious, but in this particular cipher we shall only very partially require its aid. As our predominant character is 8, we will commence by assuming it as the E of the natural alphabet. To verify the supposition, let us observe if the 8 be seen often in couples, for E is doubled with great frequency in English. In such words, for example, is meet, fleet, speed, seen, agree, etc. In the present instance, we see it doubled no less than five times, although the cryptograph is brief. Let us assume 8, then, as E. Now, of all words in the language, the is the most usual. Let us see, therefore, whether there are not repetitions of any three characters in the same order of collocation, the last of them being eight. If we discover repetitions of such letters so arranged, they will most probably represent the word the. Upon inspection, we find no less than seven such arrangements, the characters being four and eight. We may therefore assume that semicolon represents T, four represents H, and eight represents E, the last being now well confirmed. Thus, a great step has been taken. We have T, H, and E. But, having established a single word, we are enabled to establish a vastly important point, that is to say, several commencements and terminations of other words. Let us refer, for example, to the last instance but one in which the combination semicolon 4, 8 occurs, not far from the end of the cipher. We know that the semicolon immediately ensuing is the commencement of a word. And of the six characters succeeding this the, we are cognizant of no less than five. Let us set these characters down thus by the letters we know them to represent, leaving a space for the unknown. T blank E-E-T-H Here we are enabled, at once, to discard the T-H as forming no portion of the word commencing with the first T, since, by experiment of the entire alphabet for a letter adapted to the vacancy, we perceive that no word can be formed of which this can be a part. We are thus narrowed into T space EE. 
and going through the alphabet, if necessary as before, we arrive at the word tree, as the sole possible reading. We thus gain another letter, R, represented by, by parentheses comma, with the words, the tree, in juxtaposition. Look beyond these words for a short distance, we again see the combination, semicolon, four eight, and employ it by way of termination to what immediately proceeds. We have thus this arrangement, the tree, semicolon, four, parentheses four, plus question mark three four, T-H-E. Rest assured as we solve this, that the specimen before us appertains to the very simplest species of cryptograph. It now only remains to give you the full translation of the characters upon the parchment. Here it is. A good glass in the bishop's hostel, in the devil's seat, 41 degrees and 13 minutes northeast, and by north main branch, seventh limb, east side, shoot from the left eye of the death's head a beeline from the tree to the shot 50 feet out. But, said I, the enigma seems still in as bad a condition as ever. How is it possible to extort a meaning from all this jargon about devil's seats, death's heads, and bishop's hostels? I confess, replied the Grand, that the matter still wears a serious aspect when regarded with a casual glance. My first endeavor was to divide the sentence into the natural division intended by the cryptographist. You mean, to punctuate it? Something of that kind. "'But how is it possible to affect this?' "'I reflected that it had been a point with the writer "'to run his words together without division "'so as to increase the difficulty of the solution. "'Now, not an over-acute man, "'in pursuing such an object, "'would be nearly certain to overdo the matter, "'when, in the course of his composition, "'he arrived at a break in his subject "'which would naturally require a pause, or a point, "'he would be exceedingly apt to run his characters "'at this place more than usually close together.' If you will observe the MS in the present instance, you will easily detect five such cases of unusual crowding. Acting upon this hint, I made a division thus. A good glass in the bishop's hostel in the devil's seat, 41 degrees and 13 minutes. Northeast and by north. Main branch, seventh limb, east side. Shoot from the left eye of the death's head. A beeline from the tree through the shot 50 feet out. "'That still leaves me in the dark,' I answered. Oh, "'It left me in the dark as well,' replied Legrand, "'for a few days, during which I made diligent inquiry "'in the neighborhood of Sullivan's Island "'for any building which went by the name of the Bishop's Hotel, "'for, of course, I dropped the obsolete word hostile. "'Gaining no information on the subject, "'I was on the point of extending my sphere of search "'and proceeding in a more systematic manner, "'when one morning it entered into my head, quite suddenly, "'that this Bishop's Hostel might have some reference to an old family, of the name of Bessop, which, time out of mind, had held possession of the ancient manor house, about four miles to the northward of the island. I accordingly went over to the plantation, and reinstituted my inquiries among the older slaves of the place. At length one of the most aged of the women said that she had heard of such a place as Bessop's castle, and thought she could guide me to it, but that it was not a castle, nor a tavern, but a high rock." I offered to pay her well for her trouble, and after some demure she consented to accompany me to the spot. We found it without much difficulty. When dismissing her, I proceeded to examine the place. The castle consisted of an irregular assemblage of cliffs and rocks, one of the latter being quite remarkable for its height as well as for its insulated and artificial appearance. I clambered to its apex, and then felt much at a loss as to what should be next done. While I was busied in reflection, 
"'My eyes fell upon a narrow ledge in the eastern face of the rock, "'perhaps a yard below the summit upon which I stood. "'This ledge projected about eighteen inches, "'and was not more than a foot wide, "'while a niche in the cliff just above it "'gave it a rude resemblance "'to one of the hollow-backed chairs used by our ancestors. "'I made no doubt that here was the devil's seat "'alluded to in the M.S., "'and now I seemed to grasp the full secret of the riddle. "'The good glass, I knew, "'could have reference to nothing but a telescope.' for the word glass is rarely employed in any other sense by seamen. Now here, I at once saw, was a telescope to be used, and a definite point of view, admitting no variation from which to use it. Nor did I hesitate to believe that the phrases 41 degrees and 13 minutes, at northeast and by north, were intended as directions for the leveling of the glass. Greatly excited by these discoveries, I hurried home, procured a telescope, and returned to the rock. I let myself down to the ledge and found that it was impossible to retain a seat upon it except in one particular position. This fact confirmed my preconceived idea. I proceeded to use the glass. Of course, the 41 degrees and 13 minutes could allude to nothing but elevation above the visible horizon, since the horizontal direction was clearly indicated by the words northeast and by north. This latter direction I had once established by means of a pocket compass. Then, Pointing the glass as nearly at an angle of 41 degrees of elevation as I could do it by guess, I moved it cautiously up or down, until my attention was arrested by a circular rift or opening in the foliage of a large tree that overtopped its fellows in the distance. In the center of this rift I perceived a white spot, but could not at first distinguish what it was. Adjusting the focus of the telescope, I again looked, and now it made out to be a human skull. Upon this discovery I was so sanguine as to consider the enigma solved, for the phrase, main branch, seventh limb, east side, could refer only to the position of the skull upon the tree, while shoot from the left eye of the death's head admitted, also, of but one interpretation, in regard to a search for buried treasure. I perceived that the design was to drop a bullet from the left eye of the skull, and that a beeline, or in other words, a straight line, drawn from the nearest point of the trunk, through the shot, or the spot where the bullet fell, and thence extended to a distance of fifty feet would indicate a definite point, and beneath this point I thought it at least possible that a buried treasure lay concealed. All this, I said, is exceedingly clear, and although ingenious, still simple and explicit. When you left the bishop's hotel, what did you do then? Why, having carefully taken the bearings of the tree, I turned homeward. The instant that I left the devil's seat, however, a circular rift vanished, nor could I get a glimpse of it afterwards, turn as I would. What seems to me the chief ingenuity in this whole business is the fact, for repeated experiment has convinced me it is a fact, that the circular opening in question is visible from no other attainable point of view than that afforded by the narrow ledge upon the face of the rock. In this expedition to the Bishop's Hotel, I had been attended by Jupiter, who had, no doubt, observed for some weeks past the abstraction of my demeanor, and took especial care not to leave me alone. But on the next day, getting up very early, I contrived to give him the slip, and went into the hills in search of the tree. After much toil I found it. When I came home at night, my valet proposed to give me a flogging. With the rest of the adventure, I believe you are as well acquainted as myself. I suppose, said I, you missed the spot in the first attempt at digging, through Jupiter's mistake in letting the bug fall to the right instead of to the left eye of the skull. 
Precisely. This mistake made a difference of about two inches and a half in the shot, that is to say, in the position of the peg nearest the tree, and had the treasure been beneath the shot, the error would have been of little moment. But the shot, together with the nearest point of the tree, were merely two points for the establishment of a line of direction. Of course, the error, however trivial in the beginning, increased as we proceeded with the line, and by the time we had gone fifty feet, threw us quite off the scent. But for my deep-seated impressions that the treasure was here somewhere, actually buried, we might have had all our labor done in vain. And then I said, But your grandiloquence, and your conduct in swinging the beetle, how excessively odd! I was sure you were mad. And why did you insist upon letting fall the bug instead of a bullet from the skull? Why, to be frank, I felt somewhat annoyed by your evident suspicions touching my sanity, and so resolved to punish you quietly, in my own way, by a little bit of sober mystification. For this reason I swung the beetle, and for this reason I let it fall from the tree. An observation of yours about its great weight suggested the latter idea. Yes, I perceive, and now there's only one point which puzzles me. What are we to make of the skeletons found in the hole? That is a question I am no more able to answer than yourself. There seems, however, only one plausible way of accounting for them, and yet it is dreadful to believe in such atrocity as my suggestion would imply. It is clear that Kidd, if Kidd indeed secreted this treasure, which I doubt not, it is clear that he must have had assistance in the labor. But this labor being done, he may have thought it expedient to remove all participants in his secret. Perhaps a couple of blows with a mattock were sufficient, while his coadjutors were busy in the pit. Perhaps it required a dozen. Who can tell? Thanks for joining us for The Gold Bug by Edgar Allan Poe at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. Until next Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everybody, please do take a moment and share our show with others, and please do leave us a review, especially you Apple listeners. We would appreciate that very much. We'll return next Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.